Now, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles um, to our scripture reading, this is three passages from Genesis, Psalms, and 1 John. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So then God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. For you have formed my inward parts. You have knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of your earth. Your eyes saw my unformed surface. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, more than 50 years ago, uh, a man named Francis Schaeffer uh, opened up a, uh, you could call it a retreat center or um, it's called Labrie. Uh, and it was in Switzerland. And one of the reasons he opened it, and it was open to anybody who wanted to come. Uh, you could be uh, agnostic, you could be atheist, you could be Hindu, you could be really whatever um, or nothing. Um, and you could come and sit down at the table uh, of ideas and interact with one another. And the reason uh, was is because uh, Dr. Schaefer really believed that Jesus was up to every task. Uh, he wasn't scared for the skeptic to come to the table. He wasn't scared for someone to raise a hard issue that somehow Jesus would wring his hands and think, ooh, I don't know about that. He really believed that the gospel was enough for every issue. And um, he was right. Uh, this morning, uh, we're going to consider what is uh, likely the most sensitive, inflammatory, and difficult issue in American life, and that is the issue of abortion. Uh, some of you may remember that uh, because of the Dobbs case that was argued before the Supreme Court uh, this past fall, the decision is expected this summer, the issue was back front and center for most of the fall. Um, it was in all of the news. It was the, it was the dominating news story. Um, each, of us, uh, each of us in this room, um, abortion on demand was made legal in 1973 in the Supreme Court case of Roe versus Wade. Uh, each of us in this room has lived uh, most, and most of us have lived all of our lives uh, in the age of legalized abortion. It's almost certain that everybody in this room, and certainly the overwhelming number of people in this room, have some connection with abortion, whether we know we do or not, which makes it all the more difficult to think about and to talk about. But the truth is this, it is such an issue that Christians must know how to think about it and must know how to talk about it from the scriptures. And so this morning, we're going to look at uh, what I would suggest to you are the two central questions that have to do with abortion. And we're going to close with some practical 
observations and exhortations. But let's pray first. Uh, our gracious Father, um, we always need you. We always need you when we come to the pages of Scripture to uh, work through uh, the various issues therein, to learn and to grow and to just drink from the well of grace. And, um, and on this one, uh, we, we're in the same boat. We really need help for you to give us grace to understand and to see um, that you might anoint the preaching and hearing of the word. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first central question that's presented by the issue of abortion is this. When does life begin? At what point must an unborn baby be considered a person with the right to life? Now, when I say this is the first central issue, this is really the central issue. This is the issue that all of the arguments, even the legal arguments, they all rise and fall on this one issue. And this is the reason. Because abortion on demand is based on the contention that an unborn child is not a person and therefore does not have constitutional rights, such as the right to life under the 14th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. No person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Uh, in fact, as stated by uh, Justice Blackmun, who wrote the majority opinion for the court in 1973, uh, even he says this, if the fetus is a person within the language and meaning of the 14th Amendment, then Roe's case collapses, for the fetus's right to life would then be guaranteed specifically by the amendment. Now, I'm not going to, in this sermon, address uh, the considerable and what should be conclusive medical evidence other than to say that the days, uh, the days of the gray area of uh, medicine on this subject, as some claimed, largely are gone. Technology is not the same now as it was in 1973. No one disputes that a newly fertilized egg has its own genetic composition and thus biologically is unique. Um, viability, the capability of a child to live outside the womb is not the same now as it was in 1973. As one writer puts it, no one can disagree with this, that unless interrupted accidentally or deliberately, there is continuous development of a human being from the moment the sperm and ovum join and the cell begins to divide. Neither sperm nor ovum can multiply by itself. And so the medical evidence and the photographic evidence in particular should be conclusive to all reasonable persons. But of course, evidence is not the issue for everyone. So, so who gets to say when life begins? Who gets to define personhood? Well, throughout, throughout history, Christians have answered that question like this. Well, the one who created life in the first place, the one who created man, he gets to say when life begins. And the one who created man in the first place says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 27, that he created man in his own image. Now, this is why 
historically, Christians have always said that all human beings are made in God's image and therefore they possess inherent dignity and worth. The homeless person standing on the corner with a sign begging for money in tattered clothes is made in the image of God and has inherent dignity and worth. All races are made in the image of God and have inherent dignity and worth. There is no master race. The Reformation Study Bible sums up image like this. God made man and woman in his own image so that human beings are like God as no other earthly creatures are. And of course, the question this begged is this one. If this is not true, if human rights including the right to life, are not based on man being made in the image of God, then what is the basis for any human rights? What would be the basis for protecting anyone? Well, Justice Blackmun answered the question. Again, in the decision of Roe v. Wade, he says this, with respect to the state's important and legitimate interest in potential life, the quote-unquote compelling point is at viability when a child is able to live independently outside the womb. This is so because the fetus then presumably has the capability of meaningful life outside the mother's womb. So according to Roe and to later Supreme Court cases as well, abortion remains legal until the unborn child is viable. Now, why is that? Because according to Justice Blackmun, a viable child presumably has the capability of meaningful life. But what does that mean? So let me ask you this, a few questions. Is a severely mentally handicapped person capable of meaningful life? Is someone with advanced Alzheimer's who does not recognize his own child when he comes in the room to visit him at the nursing home, is that person capable of meaningful life? What about a child that's one week old, can't do anything but cry and eat and go to the bathroom? What about someone who's comatose? What about a child with a debilitating physical deformity who cannot talk or do anything, who is confined 24-7 for the rest of that child's life to an assisted living facility? Is that child capable of a meaningful life? And who gets to say? Who gets to say capable means this and who gets to say meaningful means this? If capability of meaningful life is the standard, then arguably the circle of protected life gets smaller. Infanticide, abortion, euthanasia, or mercy killing, all okay. Some great uh, articles by a guy named David Claussen and a guy named Tim Keller. Um, and what we see is, is this. This circle of life getting smaller, it's exactly what we see in the ancient Greco-Roman world into which the Christian church was born. Abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, all commonplace. It was common for undesirable infants 
Maybe it was a girl and you didn't want a girl. Or maybe there was something wrong with the child. It was common in the, in the world into which the Christian church was born that the child would just be taken out in the woods and put on the ground to die of exposure. Commonplace. Legal. And then along came Christians who believed in the image of God and thus the sanctity of life. And they were against abortion because they believed that if human life made in God's image is good, then developing human life made in God's image has got to be good as well. And they were against infanticide. And they were against euthanasia. And they cared for the sick and the dying. Even during plagues, there are articles written about these three big plagues that happened sometime in the, in the Roman Empire, and, and the people who stayed behind to help these dying people were Christians at risk of catching the plague themselves. And the, and the pagans had no category for it. And they cared for the poor and for the widows and for the orphans, and they brought abandoned children into their homes. And more generally, they were instruments of cultural renewal and change. And the culture into which they came was put to shame by the gospel's regard for the sanctity of life. In fact, so much so that eventually the whole Western world adopted the idea of the image of God and the circle of life, protected life, expanded. So that's the argument from Genesis chapter 1. The second text that was read was Psalm 139. It's contained in a psalm generally that speaks of God's omniscience, God's omnipresence, and God's omnipotence. All describing man's pre-birth existence. Great book uh, by John Stott about uh, issues facing Christians today. He has a whole chapter on abortion. The first thing we see in verse 13 of chapter of Psalm 139 is this is that human beings are creations of God from the earliest stages of development. Look what the psalmist says. You formed my inward parts. In essence, in other words, you formed the essence of who I am. You're the potter. I'm the clay. You, put, you formed me like a potter. God the potter. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. God the weaver, weaving together this, chi- this child in the womb. Job chapter 10, we read this. Job says, your hands fashioned and made me. You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinew. You have granted me life. A guy named Wilcock, a writer, says this. He says, when my own mother, when my own mother was not aware of my existence, God was. And the second thing you see here is the psalmist recognizes the continuity of the continuity. He recognizes the continuity of his life from before he was born until the time he wrote the psalm. I wrote the psalm. I mean, all through the psalm, you see these words, I, me, my, these, 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 these pronouns preferring to himself. They're used throughout the psalm because the writer recognizes both before and after his birth that he was and is the same person who was in the psalm. The writer recognizes that's who I was. Continuity from embryo, baby, youth, and adult. One person, different life stages. One writer said this, not just from birth to life, but from conception to life. From embryo on through all of the days ordained for me. All of the days ordained for me, all of them were in your book before I ever lived one of them. 
There are other examples too. We don't have time to look at all of them or even look at any of them in depth, but I'll just mention a few. In Job chapter 31, Job recognizes the equality of the master and slave before God. And, and he says this, did not he who made me in the womb make him and did not one fashion us in the womb? Jeremiah chapter one, God says this, he says, before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. Luke chapter one, when Mary and Elizabeth met, both of them were pregnant. I'm really not sure how far along Mary was, so I don't have a real sense about what she knew or didn't know. Um, but um, so when Mary met Elizabeth, uh, both of them pregnant, Elizabeth's baby, John the Baptist, it says, leaped in her womb in salutation of Mary's baby, Jesus. Interesting that Luke uses here the same Greek word for an unborn child in Luke 1 that he later uses of a newborn baby in Luke 2 and of the little ones whom people brought to Jesus to be blessed by him in Luke chapter 18. And interestingly, church history confirms this continuity of life from beginning to end, from conception through resurrection. Listen to what we say all the time with our Apostles' Creed. This very same person, Jesus Christ, in whom we believe, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. On the third day, he rose again. Thus, the distinctly Judeo-Christian contribution to the conversation about abortion is this, is that unborn children from the moment of conception are divinely created persons in the image of God and thus worthy of protection at all stages of development and all contrary positions impoverish us all. So that's the Bible's answer to the first central question. When does life begin? When is a person a person? But there's a second central question presented by abortion that again, only God can satisfactorily answer and it's this one. Where I have been complicit, where I have been involved in the sin of abortion, what can I do? Where can I go with my guilt and my heartache? R.C. Sproul wrote a book on abortion, and he says this. He reminds us, thousands of people struggle with powerful, paralyzing guilt connected with abortion. It haunts women who have had them, men who have encouraged them, and doctors who have performed them. I once was approached by a practicing psychiatrist with an offer to join his staff. He explained that a large number of his patients were suffering from problems related to severe guilt. These people don't need a doctor, he said. They need someone to tell them that they are forgiven. This psychiatrist had no loyalty to Christianity. He was simply concerned about the mental health of his patients. He understood the devastating power of unresolved guilt and he recognized that denial and rationalization were not effective means of dealing with real guilt. The only effective cure for real guilt is real forgiveness. To try to cover the stain on our hands is a poor substitute for having the stain removed. So this is our last verse to consider. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't need somebody. We don't, know a, we don't need a psychiatrist or anybody else to help us rationalize. We don't need somebody to help us get over an abortion. We need someone somewhere to go to for forgiveness and cleansing and grace and mercy. We need someone to take away the stains. 
We need someone who is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. We need an advocate. We need an advocate before the Father. We need an atoning sacrifice. We need the atoning sacrifice. We need to know that with God in Christ, there's forgiveness. We need to know that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. We need to know as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. We need to know that the Lord our God is in our midst, a mighty one who will save, who will rejoice over us with gladness, who will quiet us with his love, who will exult over us with loud singing, who while we were yet sinners died for us. These are the things we need to know again and again. We need to know in the words of the hymn writer, his blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. One writer reminds us of this. God's grace in Christ was enough to save Moses, David, and Paul, all men who were stained with the crime of blood, and it is enough to save us as well. So those are the two central questions I would suggest presented by the issue of abortion, personhood and forgiveness. But third and last, some practical exhortations to us. First exhortation is this. Most of us here um, today, most of us here likely need to repent, at least of our apathy. Most of us with regard to this issue have been out of the game for far too long. If nothing else, we can pray for the kingdom to come. We can pray for the end of abortion, for lawmakers and judges, for those involved in the abortion industry to have changes of heart. We can pray for the living casualties of abortions, the men and women who are sitting around us uh, in this congregation, likely the, women, the men and women who have been complicit in abortion, people we live around, people we work with, people we go to the grove with, who even as they embrace forgiveness in Christ, they still regularly struggle with regret and shame because unintended pregnancies create lifelong issues. Second exhortation. Let's generally, by the grace of God, be active agents of change in society. Be what we are. Be salt and light in all of our circles of influence, displaying the gospel in word and deed. The active presence of Christians changes cultures, including the culture of abortion. Let's be involved financially and in all legitimate political processes. Let's support and work with ministries to the fatherless, agencies like Lifeline Children's Services, and Pregnancy Center of Oxford and Save a Life, places that encourage women to choose life. Let's see if they need volunteers. Let's oppose and pray against organizations that perform or support abortions. Let's support places like Palmer Home and French Camp, places that care for orphans and children in need. The sanctity of life covers a broad spectrum of needs. We can't be one-issue people. We can't just be just against abortion. We've got to be for sanctity of life in all of the ways that that plays itself out in our culture. Maybe consider, maybe consider adoption. Maybe consider financing adoption. Maybe you say, well, you know, I'm 75 years old. I don't think they're going to let me adopt, and I just don't know if I have the strength to do it. Well, you know what? But maybe you got $800,000 in the bank. Well, then you can do this. You know what? I'm going to give $50,000 a year to these places, these places that are encouraging life, these adoption agencies. I'm going to give money to these folks 
so that even though I'm too old to raise a, a four-year-old or a two-year-old or a baby, I'm going to help these young people. They got time and energy, but they don't have money. Maybe you finance adoptions. Maybe be foster parents for babies and children. Maybe provide homes for unmarried pregnant women who have chosen to have their babies at great cost to themselves. Let's defend them. Let's encourage them. Let's applaud their integrity and their courage. Let's give them every possible personal, emotional, spiritual, medical, social, and financial support. Let's work toward and be a part of the changing of the consensus in this country and speak up in love against infanticide, abortion, and euthanasia. Even wider, let's work toward and speak against every form of injustice and racism and greed. Be mentors and be tutors and be advocates. Help with mercy ministries. Social ills will not be cured by more abortions and more euthanasia. Let's teach biblical sexuality to our children. Let's help them to understand the grand significance of being made in God's image as male or female. Honey, you are a female. And that's good. You don't have to apologize for that. And let's be prepared to bring the healing balm of Christ to those who still anguish at times over past abortions and who heap condemnation upon themselves, who need to hear over and over again that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I want to close by circling back um, to Christ our advocate, to Christ the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and let grace have the final word, again from Dr. Sproul's book. Though what I have done cannot be undone, I can be forgiven. Forgiveness is one of the marvels of God's grace. Its healing power is magnificent. God does not require that we spend the rest of our lives with a red letter A on our chest. His requirement simply is that we, is that we repent and come to him for the cleansing of forgiveness. When God in Christ forgives us, we are forgiven. When God in Christ cleanses us, we are cleansed. And in the words of John Bunyan, we say, and we have to say, Christ, my righteousness, is in heaven, and he is standing at the right hand of God. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do thank you for this certain cleansing of the Lord Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ. And we do pray, Father, that you would give us, give us grace to believe. Father, we're like the folks that say, Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. We come back again and again. Thank you for how much you love us in Jesus. Thank you for much you tell us that in Christ is forgiveness and that you love us more than we can understand. Please drill that home to us again and again and again. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.